Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, it has been an historic 48 hours for the global energy markets. We had WTI crude yesterday trading well negative for the first time ever. We're a little bit positive uh, today on that May contract. That's the uh, last day for the trading of the May contract. Uh, To give us a sense of what is going on in the global oil markets, we welcome John Kilduff, founding partner of Again Capital based in New uh, New York City. John, thanks so much for joining us. What does negative oil, negative WTI, what did that mean yesterday? Well, it meant that there's a, just an abject glut of oil uh, in the U.S., particularly here in the Gulf Coast and the um, Cushing, Oklahoma region, that uh, any more additional barrels are having a problem finding a home. Basically, the, uh, the folks who have storage uh, all of a sudden found themselves not sitting on an oil tank, but sit, sitting in the penthouse and uh, were able to charge accordingly. In other words, not only am I going to get free oil, you're going to pay me to take your oil. Uh, and again, it's because of what's happened here over the past number of weeks now in this just crash in demand, both globally and, and here in the United States, where, for example, gasoline demand has fallen 50%. So, John, I'm looking right now at the June contract, WTI, which has plummeted to about 14 14- $15 a barrel, just to give you a sense. Back in March, when things were not looking too pretty, uh, they were at 20, almost $24 a barrel, comparatively high. Um, where are we headed here? Are we going to see the same kind of trading activity in the June contract as we did in the May one? That's very much my sense that we, we will. I mean, uh, the, the, this is going to be a steady March lower. Uh, the physical market conditions are only going to worsen over the next uh, several weeks for a couple of reasons. Um, even though we have uh, the U.S. rig count plunging and we are starting to finally see some U.S. oil production get uh, get reined in and decline by about 700,000 barrels from the recent peak, by the way. Uh, but uh, this market is going to have to stare down a, um, a massive amount of Saudi Arabian crude oil. Uh, the, the Saudis are going in for the kill here, it looks like, and um, to really just you know put a, a knockout blow onto our uh, our domestic producers, particularly the shale players. Uh, because they have uh, 40 to 50 million barrels scheduled to be heading our way over the course of the next uh, couple of months here that uh, are going to compete for uh, what little available storage space remains uh, and use that crude to uh, run it through their refinery here in Texas. That'll preclude them from you know what they usually do, which is buy at least some U.S. Gulf uh, of Mexico-produced crude oil. So um, this is going to get a lot worse still before it gets better. All right, so give us a sense of what that's going to mean for the U.S. oil producers, the shale patch uh, companies, um, you expect a wave of bankruptcies, consolidation, if in fact this does come to pass? Unless the administration comes through with some kind of aid package, there's been some hint of that. Uh, yes, there, there's there's no there's no way around it. Uh, that these uh, these negative prices are 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 just uh, they're problematic for even companies as large as Conoco and ExxonMobil, although they will withstand it uh, and they will you know be on the other side of this thing and probably be the ones picking up the pieces here. You're going to see a consolidation and a concentration uh, emerge in the industry where there's probably only be a a handful of really significantly large uh, uh, players because they're the ones with the deep pockets that can afford to, A, weather the storm, and then 
you know, buy out or buy, or buy these assets out from the auctions and bankruptcies that ensue. So, John, you did mention President Trump's uh, pledged support of the energy industry. So let's go there. President Trump tweeting earlier this morning, we will never let the great U.S. oil and gas industry down. I have instructed the Secretary of Energy and Secretary of the Treasury to formulate a plan which will make funds available so that these very important companies and jobs will be secured long into the future. How much do you sort of uh, foresee that helping things, given the fact that, yes, federal law does authorize uh, the Energy Department to set aside emergency supplies, but the agency has only ever used about two-thirds of that capacity. So how much are we going to actually end up seeing here? Well, I mean, for starters, I, you know, you know the, the Saudi Arabia has never been a friend of ours whenever there's oil market turmoil. When the prices are sky high, they're very slow to put more oil on the market to help us out. And then, and, and right now, um, I don't, you know, I don't want to be over the top about what they're doing, but I mean, they are really coming at us hard here. Uh, this is not something a, a, an ally or a friend or certainly a, a country that benefits from our protection should be doing. Uh, if I was the president, I'd urge the president to embargo their oil and keep these 40 tankers off and away from this market. But um, what we don't want to have happen here um, is for the oil industry to get wrecked. And then we find ourselves uh, once again vulnerable uh, to the policies of OPEC plus and Russia and um, and we get a tight market where consumers, U.S. consumers get squeezed again. We go through the whole cycle one more time. Um, that's what I'm concerned about. And I think to the extent that the administration can lend some kind of aid and prop up at least a portion of the industry, they should they should definitely do it. They should uh, get oil into the strategic petroleum reserve. I've always been an advocate of using that aggressively because we're up against a cartel. Um, you know, release the oil when 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 OPEC is uh, is tightening the the, the, the spigot. And fill it up now when prices are super low and we'll have an insurance policy in the future. So, you know, hopefully they'll get aggressive on it in the administration. We can do something about this. This is not an entirely free market. That's the problem. John Kilduff, thank you so much for being with us. John Kilduff, founder of Again Capital. On the oil markets, not entirely a free market, although you can That's get oil for free if you can store it somewhere. In fact, someone will pay you to take it off their hands, at least when it came to the May contract. Interesting to see whether we'll see the same dynamic again play out with the June contract. John Kilduff saying, looks like it's a very likely possibility given the supply-demand dynamic and the glut out there of crude. Well, one thing I think investors are beginning to become accustomed to in this coronavirus era uh, in terms of the markets is volatility. I'm looking at the VIX right now, up a little more than three full points here to 47. That's a long way, certainly, from the peak of several weeks ago of about 80, but it's also a long way from where we've historically been trading in the 13, 14, 15 uh, kind of level. So a higher risk uh, environment for sure. Someone to give us some perspective. There's nobody better than David Kotak. He's a chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Cumberland Advisors with about $3 billion under management. So, David, thanks so much for joining us. I don't think we've really chatted much at all since this coronavirus has really become the narrative of not only our lives, uh, but also financial markets as well. Would love to get your long-term perspective on kind of how you're thinking uh, about this new world that, that we're in and how to allocate capital. Well, uh, thank you, Paul. We are... Um hunker down as everyone else in the world who can hunker down is doing. Our view is a cash reserve in equity portfolios is necessary. In bond portfolios, highest grade credits 
we are about to watch the dismemberment of the credits related to lower-grade energy sector, and we expect that to be a worldwide phenomenon. And we have to wait for the elements that we know we must obtain, and they are testing, 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 immune system enhancement, antibodies, vaccines, and robust, credible treatments. And as soon as we have those, we can open up and we can get back to work and we can eventually fully recover. We cannot recover before we have these things. And any attempts to recover before you have them is a high-risk gamut. We're about to test that in the United States where we see people in bowling alleys in Georgia and on the beaches in Jacksonville and assembled at state capitals protesting. And we're going to find out in two or three or four weeks if there are infectious surges in those locations or tied to people who participated in those activities. We're going to have that evidence very soon. And a lot of people are worried about what the economic damage would be from a resurgence of cases. You were saying that it's important to hide out in the safest of investments through this all, as there is a washout effect of the shutdowns. And we're seeing that certainly in the bond market today. 10-year Treasury yields back at near all-time lows, 0.54%. You've been covering Treasuries. You've You've understood the Fed inside and out for decades Where do you think the 10-year yield is going? 25 basis points here? Oh, I don't know uh, because the Fed is trying to follow a World War II model, Lisa. And the World War II model essentially took the Fed and said, we're going to help the Treasury finance all it has to finance. And we're going to become partners with Treasury. And we're going to set aside moral hazard discussions for later. We're going to set aside Fed independence for later, and we'll deal with that after the crisis. And that's what's at work. So So in World War II, the Fed stabilized the entire Treasury curve within a few basis points, and it became predictable and a reference point. My expectation is the Fed will get to that here as well, and we'll have a positively sloped full yield curve of treasuries managed and stabilized by the Fed. I sure hope so, because that will then become a platform reference for high-grade credit for the entire world, and it is much needed right now. David Kotak, this is fantastic and and really interesting. In other words, yield curve control will be the policy from the Federal Reserve as it essentially monetizes the debts of uh, the United States by buying up the excess treasuries that the U.S. government sells, sells to plug its deficit. Given that model, how big can the Federal Reserve balance sheet get? My estimate is the Federal Reserve balance sheet could grow to between 8 and 11 or 12 trillion, and it would be able to be financed and managed, and maybe larger 
in World War II, when, once Pearl Harbor occurred and the Fed policy changed in 1942, it went on for four years. The, the Federal Reserve assisted the United States of America in financing the war, and the debt to GDP exceeded 100%. And it had to do it. And we were able at the end to be victorious in a war. This is a different kind of war, but the models are the same. And federal finance is needed. It's needed in the states, in the hospitals, in the cities, in agencies, in nonprofits, for assistance to business, or else we will have a mass of financial failures and bankruptcies. And there's no reason to have them if the policy is to gap across the valley to the other side of the crisis when science and medicine will fix this. So, David, about 30 seconds, just give us your sense of what of the government's fiscal stimulus to date and what else you think needs to happen. Well, we have $2 trillion direct. We have an argument of 3 or $4 trillion, which would be indirect. And we have a current debate for another half a trillion. My view is we'll need a number of more tranches of that. And sooner is better than later. So I hope politicians realize it and deliver it. David Kotak, thank you so much for taking the time. All my best to your family and to yourself as you manage through this. David Kotak, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Cumberland Advisors, talking yield control, yield curve control, and that's actually something that a number of strategists are saying uh, we seem to be headed toward with the Federal Reserve buying the bulk yep. of the Treasury issuance that the Federal that the uh, U.S. Treasury is selling to plug the fiscal deficit that we are developing to pay for some of these uh, necessary bridges to get to the other side, Paul. Yeah, and as David suggested, from a fiscal stimulus perspective, there's very likely going to need to be more just given our sense of timing of how this uh, may play out here. So, um, you know, it looks like the government is going to have to remain pretty active here. Uh, The Fed has certainly done its job. As the dollar continues to strengthen in light of this flight to haven, flight to quality is the fate of emerging markets, and especially given the fact that the developed nations really have been uh, strapped on their own in dealing with the coronavirus. We're so lucky. Eric Fine joining us, portfolio manager uh, focusing on emerging markets, fixed income strategy at Van Eck Global. We uh, touched with a base with him yesterday after the IMF meetings and some of the focuses that everyone is, is looking at. I just want to start with the flight of cash from developing markets. How much appetite are you hearing from your colleagues and from, frankly, uh, staff within your own company about putting money to work within the developing world, given the pain that we're seeing in, in, in places like the United States and Europe and, and the lack of willingness to take risk? Thanks uh, for the question. And uh, so, first of all, last week saw the first inflow into EM bond funds. Um, So that's a a narrow answer to your question. Second, I'd say more broadly, EM is different from the pre-global financial crisis EM. Um, Before the the global financial crisis, when I spent about half of my uh, career, um, when something went wrong in the world, all the money flowed out, and that was the end of the story. Um, After the global financial crisis, markets learned that having high real interest rates, independent central banks, good fiscal policy um, actually generated good returns. And so 
the big uh, change from this IMF meeting compared to uh, uh, past crisis meetings was the discussion was very much who are the winners, who are the losers. Obviously, everything is kind of a loser, right? So it's going to be a big relative question to, to a big extent. Um, but uh, uh, last week we saw the first uh, inflows in general, right? I can't talk specifically about um, uh, my company, of course, um, um, yet because um, that's you know a matter of official uh, and timing issues. Um, but uh, uh, but um, it hasn't been as bad as it's as, as it's been in the past. And the other thing I'd say is official support. A lot of this official support is not just to their own economies; it's to the EMs, and that's also a big change. So, Eric, we've seen just unprecedented volatility in the energy markets over the last couple of days. How does that kind of impact emerging markets broadly defined? Great question. Um, the problem with oil is it tends to correlate with everything. And when the markets see oil down, they think it's risk down because they think it's demand down. Um, I think that's generally right, but I don't think that's the right uh, character, uh, characterization of why oil is down right now. Um, it is about uh, a storage capacity, and it is about a supply shock, not necessarily a demand shock. So that's the broadest point I'd make. The second point I'd make is there are winners and losers. Um, consu- uh, the consumption basket, the con- typical consumption basket in an emerging economy is food and energy. So a lot of these countries are seeing their inflation going down. Um, they are not just a bunch of oil exporters. Um, there are even some explicit winners, like South Africa strikes me. South, South Africa is complicated, and all these countries just, but they export gold, and they and 20% of their imports are oil. Um, so the oil story generally correlates badly, and for legitimate reasons. Uh, but uh, for me, it's all about the details. Um, and uh, there are winners and losers, and I was glad to see at IMF meetings that the focus was not oh, just exit and sell everything. Um, It was very much careful analysis of country by country and what it means. One of the biggest countries in this complex is China. And I've heard a a real bull case made that China will recover first, given the fact that they were first to uh, experience the coronavirus. And we did see signs of that in the economic data. However, they are now facing the decline in demand for the supply chain items that they have previously supplied, given the fact that the rest of the world is shut down. What's the prospect there? Yeah, China is um, China's one of the most important countries, not just because it's the largest economy in PPP terms or, you know, second biggest. Um, but uh, uh, if you're going to see a V recovery anyway, it, it seems to me it's most likely a V-shaped recovery. Uh, letters are probably not the best way to answer economic questions this time around, but it's the most likely to see a V. This is the biggest fiscal stimulus they've had ever, basically. Um uh, the lockdown seem to have been working, and they're unwinding. And the early data, as you referred to, is has been positive. Another key feature of China is it's acting as a global stabilizer. Um, they are keeping their effects stable. That is a very unusual role, and it's an important anchor for uh, uh, for the EM. Um, you will also, uh, uh, I think, uh, a big signal will be on whether the uh, um, policy committee coming up gets delayed or not. Um, the last one I'd say on China is look for lower rates. In our framework, real interest rates are too low there. But you know what? Frameworks, there's a time for frameworks and there's a time for sort of more narrative common sense thinking. Um, I would, I, I don't think looking at 0% or 0 is an extreme sort of 
uh, uh, grabbing statement. But I think much, much lower interest rates in China as it stimulates fiscally is a very, very reasonable um, question to be asking, and that would boost it. But I would say it's the likeliest V. Um, there are some early signs. Um, and, uh, um, and so there are this, some of this optimism um, is not unfounded. Hey, Eric, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, your thoughts. Eric Fine, Portfolio Manager for Emerging Markets Fixed Income Strategy at Van Eck Global, based in uh, New York City. So it's interesting, Lisa, you think about the risk uh, that emerging market investors typically take on for that presumably better return. One could argue there's quite amount of risk and potential return in more developed markets now, uh, given some of the pullbacks we've seen and the volatility we've seen. Yeah, I think what Eric was saying, though, about the details is important. The idea that lower oil prices will be beneficial for uh, countries that import, even though they could decimate, say, the budgets of the likes of Nigeria. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So on one one hand, it's good in terms of inflation. On the other hand, uh, if you're producing uh, that commodity, like a lot of the emerging markets do, uh, clearly a big issue. Markets selling off today. S&P off 2.9%. We'll have more. This is Bloomberg. As we watch oil prices plunge, the question is, what does this mean for inflation when you see that the Fed is trying to fight it with everything that they have? The idea of this disinflationary trend, the Fed would like to see more inflation. We are yet seeing inflation expectations fall once again. Ira Jersey joining us. He's been talking about the disinflationary pressures. He's chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. I want to start there, given the price of oil, what we're seeing, how correlated has that been to inflation? inflation expectations in the near and long term and the Fed's ability to change that? Yeah, so, so traditionally, it's been very high. So the, the correlation between short-term inflation expectations, like you know, one year and two year, is at times um, over, well over 90% uh, correlated. Now, I think the issue with the current move is that even though uh, front-end contracts of oil, so you know, uh, May, June, July, those are all coming down. But when you look at what the market's still expecting for oil in, say, uh, uh, January of 2021, it's still over. Over thirty dollars. So the so the thing is, even though we might have a short term dip in headline inflation because of what's going on with the spot oil price and the near term oil prices, if they do go back up to those kind of thirty ish levels, then you wind up seeing um, basically an unchanged energy component of CPI. So so actually today, ironically, and even yesterday, you didn't get significant moves in the market's expectations of inflation. So, Ira, thinking about, you know, all the money that the government is spending here in fiscal stimulus, how concerned is the Treasury market for, you know, the U.S. budget deficit may quadruple this year to almost $4 trillion? How is that being reflected in the marketplace? At some point, we've got to start paying this stuff back. It's not being reflected at all. Um, and in fact, it's just the other way. So, the, you know, what, what tends to happen with treasuries, so unless you think that the federal government actually will be um, in default at some point in the future, what, uh, what tends to happen is treasury yields tend to go down as the treasury is issuing more and more debt. And the reason for that is because they're issuing that debt into economic weakness. So two things occur during, during those periods. One is there's a, a, a lack of appetite for other fixed income assets and people want to be in the safest assets, so they jump in and buy treasuries. And that's exactly what you've seen. That's the flight to quality bid that, um, that's been in a lot of the government bond markets over the past couple of weeks. Um, the, the, other, the other thing is, is that when uh, the, 
I think the expectation by the market is that the Federal Reserve will continue to be very large buyers of uh, of the Treasury market, and because of that, um, there's not a lot of impetus, and and it's very hard to get short the market because you're worried that the that the Federal Reserve is just going to keep on buying and buying and buying, so you won't be able to to um, to profit from being short the market, except maybe in very short term trades. Ira. This is sort of a strange concept. The Fed has thrown everything it can think of and may try to throw more at the markets with its balance sheet expanding by $2 trillion in a month. You've got Congress expanding its deficit. And yet you have city analysts, rate strategists saying that they don't think the Fed's views are expansionary enough, that they that they aren't necessarily easy and accommodative to the degree that would be required, uh, given the uh, the shock that we're seeing to the economy. Do you agree? So I, I disagree with them because I think that there's nothing, zero, that central banks can do that will stimulate the economy without uh, getting people back to work and having physical distancing uh, rules change. At the end of the day, an economy is made up of transactions, and w- when you have a significant reduction in those transactions that are occurring, and I mean real money transactions, I mean me, you, you know, I, just take me as an anecdote. I've gotten, I used to get gas once a week in my car. I have not gotten gas in a month. Right. So, you know, you wonder why oil prices are low. Well, right there is the reason. And that and, and you do that over it's millions your fault. and millions. It's uh, Ira Jersey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, in, in part, in part, it is. And that's because, you know, of this physical distancing that we're all doing. So it, because, you know, our economic activity is lower by 10, 20 percent, you know, anything that the Fed does is not going to stimulate demand for credit growth. And that's what you need in order to. Um, and that's how monetary policy helps helps is that it, it helps uh, people who want loans to be able to get them at much cheaper levels. And they just, you know, who, who's getting on a loan at this point to start a business or to buy a car? You, you can't go to a car showroom. So how are you going to buy a car? Right? So Ira, just quickly, we had, we saw negative oil prices uh, yesterday. Are we going to see negative interest rates? Um, well, you, you have in a lot of places, and in fact, in the, uh, Treasury bills traded negative uh, earlier today. So you, you have, um, I, I don't think that the Federal Reserve will cut interest rates to negative, but, it, you know, is it possible for T-bills to trade there on occasion? I think there is, just because of that flight to quality uh, uh, bid that the market's continuing to uh, absorb. Thank you so much. Ira yeah, Ira, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate that. Ira Jersey, uh, Chief Interest Rate Strategist uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.